So today, we're going to get right into it. And I want to start off with this quote from a pastor, a retired pastor out of Minnesota, by the name of John Piper. And this quote is going to be helpful for us to think through today as we look at followers of Jesus. And so as I read this quote, I just want you to take a moment and stop. And just don't think about anything else. Just hear the words that I'm saying. And before you know the answer or what he says at the end, think through your answer to this question. So he says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? And that question, I remember the very first time I read this book and I ran across that quote, as I was going through that question, so much of it was running through my mind. of like, that sounds amazing. That's what I'm looking forward to. No more pain. Everything is good. Everything is great. There's no more conflict. And as he asked that last part of, but Christ was not there, it pierced me. Because at that time, I realized that I was seeking Jesus for what he could give me. I was seeking Jesus for heaven. I was seeking Christ for all the gifts that he gave and not the giver himself. And so today we're going to look at how people, the followers of Christ, interact with his signs. And I know normally when you hear that word follower, you automatically think Christian. But for today, I want us to put that to the side and only look at follower in the pure sense of that these are people who are just following after him. And they have different motivations. So as we looked at the fee, as we look at the feeding of the 5,000, we're going to see how some only followed him because of the signs that he did and to be healed. We're going to also see how his closest disciples, how they were following him, but yet they were forgetting the signs that he had already did. And lastly, we're going to look at how a misunderstanding of the signs of Christ will point us to the wrong Christ and point us to the wrong mission of what he has for us. And I know this text is very popular. It's well known. Many people know it. It's You probably heard it sometime preached before already if you've been in church for any amount of time or you've read it or heard it referenced before. And so today I ask that as we are going through this passage, that we look at it for where we're at today. It's the blessing of God's word that in different seasons of our life, different aspects of scripture pop off for us. They look to us and they help us to see where we're at presently to help us. How do we look to Christ and his word freshly? So I ask us to think about that today as we have known this passage, that we look at it with fresh eyes and seeing where God is speaking to us today through his word. So with that, I'm going to open us up in our passage. We're going to be in John 6, starting in verse 1, going through verse 1 through verse 15. So it reads, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, 
Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200, might mess up this word, but denarii, worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Amen. I'm going to open this up in prayer. Lord, we come before you in thankfulness, Lord. We come before you thankful that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. And so, Lord, I pray that your word may become rich to us. May we see the beauty of who you are. May we learn of ourselves from your word. May your scriptures examine us. May they teach us your ways. May they search our hearts. May they test our faith that it may come on the other side refined like gold and proven to be true and solid within you, Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray for myself, Lord, that I may speak your words clearly. Pray that I may worship you through the preaching of your word. I pray that those who hear may join in worship, Lord. And we just thank you so much that you leave us not in the temporal but you bring us to greater spiritual heavenly realities where you are king. And we thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we pick up now today in John chapter 6 and just a little preface of what's been going on before. So we just came out of chapter 5, and as Tim was talking about starting off with the healing at the pool of Bethesda. As Jesus had healed this man, and then he had got into this discussion between himself and the Jews, and he was explaining to them his authority and what he was able to do in his relationship with the Father. And as John says in verse 1, after this, and that time period in between is about six months to a year. And we get that because in chapter 5, verse 1, it talks about the feast of the Jews, and in chapter in chapter 6, verse 4, it tells us about the Passover. So we see this amount of time has elapsed, that Jesus is still going and teaching and doing miracles and healing of the sick, and now this large crowd has amassed, and they're seeking to find healing, they're seeking to see a sign, they're seeking Jesus for so many different reasons. And also in this passage, this is one of the outside of the resurrection, of the only miracles that are recorded in all four of the Gospels. And we're not going to go to them all today because there's going to be a lot of references I'm going to pull from them, but just for yourself, if you want to go back and look at those references to this miracle from the other Gospels, 
They're going to be in Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21. We're going to see Mark's account in Mark 6, verses 30 through 44. And lastly, we're going to see Luke's account in chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. And this shows us that this miracle was so public that each of the disciples decided to account this and write this down. And this should be an encouragement to us as we get to see the different perspectives, the details that each of them was focusing on. And not to be discouraged and think that there's something different because none of them contradict each other. And we also learn of how it is with us when we witness to others, to our family, to our friends, to whoever it may be, that there's certain things that we will come to them and explain to them about. For example, if I'm speaking to a Jew, I want to show them how Jesus has come out of the Old Testament, how he is the, the Messiah that they prophesied about. Or if I'm speaking to a friend who's an atheist and who has no idea about God, I want to show him how Jesus is the creator of all and that he is God and that he is real. And so as we see with the Gospels as they're different audiences, they will point out different details about the stories of Christ. And this is one that we can look at to see how each of them go about it in this feeding of the 5,000. So I encourage you to go back and look at them. I'm going to pull from them as we go out through today's message. And secondly... Tim already got to it a little bit this morning if you were here, but he was talking about how this starts off with Jesus' discourse on himself being the bread of life. So this miracle is important to us to think through as we go through the rest of chapter 6 where he starts off with doing miracles and they are amazing. They're following him. By the end of this chapter, many have left him. And they no longer desire to follow him. And as we look at why it is, what has Jesus said that's caused many to say, I will reject him? And it's caused others to say, this is the only God. This is the only Christ. You alone have the words of eternal life. And so I encourage you to be here for each of these next messages through chapter 6 and just seeing how Jesus ties so much of the Old Testament references, so much together to proclaim that he is the bread of life. So we're going to start off in verse 2. So verse 2 says, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So as I was saying, their motivation for following after Jesus was because of the signs. They were coming to him because they wanted to be healed, either for themselves or for somebody else that they knew. Or they just wanted to see a great miracle. They wanted to see this miracle-working Jesus that so many probably were talking about after all the things that he was doing that are recorded and also stuff that we don't even know of. But we know that Jesus continued his ministry throughout the years that he was on this earth. And so we see many coming after him, following after Jesus, seeking after a sign. And the question that I ask is, was it wrong? Was it wrong for them to seek Jesus for healing? Because he was healing people. He was, and Luke even tells us that he healed some of them. So the thing that they were seeking after, they even received it, and that was a good thing. And so the question of if is, is it wrong is contingent upon our hearts and their hearts. So it's yes and no. It's no in the sense of this. If they were seeking Jesus only for the gift that he gave, only to be healed, but they wanted no part of the Jesus that heals, they were seeking him wrongly. And on the other end of why this is wrong It's about Christ. It's about him being this great, good giver. 
And we see also that Jesus didn't just heal them and then just say, okay, it's good. You've got what you wanted, no more need of anything else. But as we see continuously, when Jesus heals people, he spoke truth to them. He called them out of their sin. He told them to sin no more, as we saw in our in chapter 5. And when he healed the man, when he came back to him, he told him to sin no more. And so we can't separate these two things of healing and blessing in the sense of physical. They cannot be separated from the spiritual. And this is why one of my own personal pet peeves and a phrase that's not helpful is when we say preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. This mind of thinking, I understand what people are trying to get of helping people and being benevolent and caring for people, but it misses the point of what these signs, what these helping, what benevolence is for. It's to point to a greater reality that yes, I've given you water, but there is water that you will never thirst again. Yes, you may receive bread and your, and your belly may be better, that you may not be hungry anymore, but there's a greater bread that you'll be satisfied for all of eternity. And so for each one of us, as we look at doing good unto others, as we look at benevolence, as we look as to serving other people, let us not just end on doing good in the temporal sense, but like Christ, point them to a higher reality, a spiritual reality, a reality that their souls need much more healing than their physical body does. As Jesus tells us constantly, it's better. It's better for us to enter the kingdom of God broken rather to go to hell whole. And we see this reality as they're seeking him for this healing, that they were missing the point if their motivation only was to be physically healed. So let's continue on through the chapter, verses 3 and 4. So in verse 3, it says, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So if you guys have been noticing with John, he'll mention the Passover, and there's something that happens pretty frequently, or each time he talks about the Passover. Each time John is talking about the Passover, there's some reference coming to Jesus' death and resurrection, his sacrifice for all. The first time that we saw this is back in Chapter 2, verse 4, and we see through this whole entire chapter of 2, honestly, where Jesus is going to the temple, and he's talking to them, and he's telling them that, and he's going to destroy this temple in three days, he's going to raise it up. That's during the first time we see the Passover mentioned. And now as we see the Passover reference, you're going to see Jesus start this discord of giving his body and his flesh up, and himself being that Passover lamb. And the third time that we see it is in starting in chapter 11, verse 55, Jesus start, and John starts off talking about Jesus' last week of ministry and another reference to the Passover, and we see what his fulfillment of, that, of each of these things were. So as we see this Passover aspect of, Jesus, of John mentioning this and talking about this, let us see what John is talking about. Often the theme of John is pointing to spiritual realities beyond the physical. Because so often, as we see Jesus talking to people, interacting with them, they get lost in the temple. And we can imagine during this time, the Jewish mindset during the Passover, they're thinking of the Passover and they're thinking of the Exodus. They're thinking of all these great truths that have happened before them. They're desiring that the Messiah would come and build this political kingdom and turn, and turn away the Romans to retake and establish Israel as the kingdom, to bring peace upon earth and establish his government. They were thinking of the forgiveness of sins of this lamb that was sacrificed. 
And as we see, Jesus is the answer to all of these things. The greater reality is not to get focused in the temporal, but that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And he will go and explain this more deeply as we go throughout this chapter. So I want you to encourage you to be able to go back and look at the Exodus and look at the story and, and see the realities and the foreshadowing of Christ in them. And so we continue on through verses five and six. So it says, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. As I initially read this, I passed over this of words. Um, I pass over this passage, just going past it and not thinking deeply of that passage where Jesus said he tested them. But as I took time and stopped and started to think about that, why did Jesus test him? And he's, as it says, and John tells us very clearly, Jesus wasn't lacking knowledge. He wasn't trying to find out something that he didn't know. He knew exactly what was already going to happen, but he still tested Philip. And we don't see everything of why he did this, but we can lean upon other passages in scripture that help us to understand why does God test us? What is the testing of God for? And so we're going to turn to two of them. We're going to start off in Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 4. And if you want to put your finger also in James 1, verses 2 through 4. So in Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 4, it says, the whole commandment that I command you today You shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That he may make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so we see one of the very first, one of the first reasons why God will test us is because it shows what's in our heart. It shows if we're truly going to be obedient to him. It shows that if we're genuinely looking to him in faith. Because the saying will go a lot of times that you know who your true friends are in times of trial. That saying is also true as you know where your faith is also in times of trial. And we see that Jesus was testing Philip and also that test is for us also to see is our faith truly in Christ in the midst of trial? Or do we turn to other things? Do we put our hope and our trust in other things in the midst of trials, in the midst of the testing of our faith? And so the first reason for testing is it shows if we are truly obedient unto the Lord. So now let's look at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4.
So James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the second reason for testing is it produces steadfastness. And also, if we're able to see joy in that particular testing, it shows what we truly take joy in. And so what I mean by that is, if we see closeness to Christ, faith in Christ as the highest goal and the thing that is most valuable in our life, we are able to count our testing and our trials as joy. Because they're only springboards to be able to get to him. They're just helping us to have greater faith, to strengthen our faith, that our faith may be refined in him. But the danger is on the other side. As we're going through right now in our men's study, talking about the different idols of the heart and these things that we put as our ultimates, that we find our value, our worth, our identity in, that we find our joy ultimately in, is when we say, my job, my career, that is where I find ultimate joy. And so therefore, I can go through the testing. I can go through the trials of sleepless nights. I can go through the testing and trial of having difficult times, of it taking a long time. I'm able to endure these things because that is my ultimate end. Or if it's comfort, and it says, I don't want anything to make me uncomfortable. I want to live in the most pristine places. It doesn't matter what I have to sacrifice to get to that goal because that is my ultimate end. And that is the danger of the other side of our testing and our trials. That it shows where our faith is, but it also shows who our God is. A lot of times, testing will show you who is the God that you are worshiping. What are you truly vowing? What are you exalting as the utmost? So these testings and trials are not to be rejected, but these are good for us. These are benchmarks. These are stepping stones. These are things for us to examine our own heart to see where is our faith at. Where are we at personally with the Lord? Are we just giving him lip service? Or are we genuinely trusting him day to day? And we're going to look at the example of Philip and Andrew in a moment, but I just want to also say that even in the midst of going through those trials, and if you fail, if you still put your hope, repent, turn unto Christ, not to become despondent and say, well, I don't have faith in him right now, I'm struggling right now, therefore everything must be up. I must just give it all up. But no, he will strengthen us to be able to continue on, to be able to endure. And as we see these weak times in our life where we see that testing and and trials have proven and shown us that, hey, my faith is not as strong as I thought it was. May that be an encouragement to say, Lord, thank you for showing this to me. Thank you for opening my eyes to this area in my life where I thought I was trusting in you, but I actually wasn't. And so before we look at Philip's and Andrew's answer, just getting you to think about how would you have responded? If Jesus asked you about where are they to get bread, what would be your response? What would be your thought? How would you think about that question? So I'm going to read verse 7 and see how does Philip respond first and see how Andrew responds second and thinking about how would you have responded. So Philip answered him, 
200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So the very first thing we see with Philip is his answer is about money. He overvalues what they do not have. And initially I thought to myself, Philip, how could you forget you were there when he took water and turned it into wine? When he blessed so many people, he's healing people. You're seeing all these miracles. You're seeing all these amazing things. How could you forget that? Why does your mind shift to, well, we don't have enough? And even if we had a mass amount of money because a denarii was one day's wages, which means this would have been about eight months worth of wages. And I don't know about you, but eight months is a lot of money. That's a lot of work. And so his mind automatically goes to that. And he says, even with that, I still don't have enough. And initially, I thought to myself, how do you forget this? But I realized that that's my own tendency also, is to evaluate the situation, situation on what I do not have. Of Lord, all right, it's going to take this, this, that, and the third, but we don't have it, so how is it supposed to happen? And so we see the failing of Philip in his response is that he overvalued what they did not have. So now let's look at how does Andrew respond. So in verse 8, it says, One of his disciples, Andrew, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Andrew does the opposite. He sees what they have, and he says, this isn't enough. So he undervalues what God can do with the few. He looks and says, what is this for so many? He also forgot. He forgot what Christ was doing, what Christ had done. And this theme we see constantly that they're looking to their temporal. As we see the disciples who are close to them, they forgot. And even going back a couple times, as we'll see with Nicodemus when Christ came to him and he told him of spiritual birth, of new birth, and he was still focused only on natural birth, of going back to his mother's womb to be born again. And even with the woman at the well, when Jesus was talking to her about a water that she would never thirst again, but she was still stuck on just satisfying her physical thirst. And now with the disciples who were close to them, if they were missing the point of what great God they were before, of the generosity of Christ, his ability to transform that which was before them, his ability to multiply, his ability to do that which was impossible for man. They missed this because they were focused, stuck in on the temporal. And that's for us each to examine when we come into difficult situations, when we don't know how it's all going to work out. Do we look to Christ? Do we look to Christ in our evaluations? Do we look to Christ in our calculations? Or do we forget to add him into our equation and remembering that he supersedes any limitation and realizing that? And this is not a call. This is not a proclaiming of foolishness. Not for us to say, well, since Christ's on my side, he's so generous, I'm going to do whatever and just do whatever I think is necessary or whatever I think is right. The same way how Paul warns of taking advantage of grace that it may be a means to sin is the same way 
for us to be warned not to take Christ as a gen- generosity, as a means to foolishness. That we still are to be able to have the posture of, Lord, your will be done. Lord, if you see fit to do it in this way, if you see fit to give us this thing, if you see fit to bless this situation, if you see fit to point me in this direction, Lord, your will be done. And that tension can be hard for us as believers because we genuinely do have needs. We have things that we want. We have things that we want to go before the Lord and say, this is my situation, can you help me? And often we're told, Lord, your will be done. But how do we balance those two things? And the way is this. Lord, if you do not give me this thing, I still will love you, I still will serve you, and my joy is not contingent upon this. And that's how we can have the mindset to be able to go before the Lord truly, and he calls us to go before with our needs in our difficult situations, but still having the posture of, even if you give me none of this, if you don't bless me in this particular way, I still will love you and serve you, and this does not take away from our relationship. And that is the posture of the believer. That is the tension that we must live in between. It's going before him, but still being able to say, Lord, your will be done. And so let's pick up now Verses 10 through 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So we're not going to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 16, we see a similar allusion to to this of giving them of their fill. And in Exodus 16 and 16 through 18, we see that God had given them the manna that every single one had enough. None was lacking. None had too much or none had too little. And we see this even with Christ and his giving of the bread. And I want you to imagine this is a large crowd and Matthew helps us to have a greater amount of detail to how many people this actually was. That it was far past 5,000 because in Matthew, he tells us there was 5,000 men and women and children added on to that number. So we can guess and estimate that this was probably 10, 15, maybe even 20,000 people standing before Christ or seated, as I should say. So there's this massive crowd and Jesus is still able to give them all enough to fulfill the need that they had, that none was lacking. They all had as much as they needed. And this is foreshadowing to as we're going to go through this chapter of chapter 6. Jesus foreshadowing of him giving of himself. Him giving of himself to his people. Him giving of himself that they would have no lack, no need. That his flesh would be broken. His blood would be poured out as we think about communion for his people. And so we see Jesus again, the same thing as he was with the The miracle of turning the water into wine, he gives in abundance. He does not give stingy. 
It's amazing the amount that he gives unto these people that they had no lack. And it's even interesting as we look in the other passages that it talks about how the disciples, and when they saw this crowd, they wanted to send them away. But Jesus didn't. He still cared for those who were in need. He didn't see it as a discomfort. He didn't just send them away, but he still fed them as they had come to see him. Even in the midst of some of them having wrong motivations and some having right motivations, he still was gracious to them all. So we be encouraged that we see this picture of who our Christ is, who our Jesus is, that he is generous and he gives graciously. He gives abundantly. And also we see in Jesus' character of how he cares for those who serve. As you see that the disciples, they gather the fragments. They gather enough for each of them to have some. And let us take from this also that we can learn from Christ in this way that we also care for those who serve. That we care for them, that we love them, that we, because many times people who do serve, who are in the trenches, who are serving others, they can become forgotten. But we see that Christ did not forget the disciples in the midst of their handing out this bread. And let us take from that same mindset. And so in my efforts to be like Christ, I'm going to do something I know he's not going to like that much, but I'm still going to do it. Um, it's for my, just wanted to acknowledge my brother Tim. Um, in, man, um, man, I'm sorry. Just acknowledge my brother Tim, my thankfulness for him coming alongside him and pastoring in this church and just want to acknowledge the service that he does for us as a body. And it's encouraging for me, especially because I work so much, I don't get to be around everybody as much as much as I would like to. But it's always encouraging for me when I hear people say, man, thank God for Tim for the work that he's putting in. Thank God for Tim for him pouring into our lives. Thank God for Tim for him just coming alongside us and leading us in different ways. And just the way that I've been able to sit alongside my brother and see him serve. And I just wanted to Take this time to be like Christ and acknowledge and caring for those who serve. And so just want to acknowledge my brother at this moment. So before I get all teared up, I'm going to continue on. <laughs> so we're going to continue on into um, verses 14 and 15. So in verse 14, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So we've already talked about this reference to the prophet in prior passages, but just in case you weren't here, if you don't know, it's in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. And this is when Moses is telling the people that the Lord is going to raise up another prophet that will be like him and that they must hear him. And we see that they acknowledged Jesus rightly. They called him rightly of who he was. He was this prophet. But we begin to see that this is the danger and misunderstanding of who Jesus is, of being able to acknowledge him in his stature, who he is, but at the same exact time missing his goal and his mission. And so as follows, as they're coming to him, it says in verse 15, that Jesus perceived he knew what they were about to do, that they wanted to make him king. And this is a part of the Jewish culture, this desire for a political Messiah. The Jews were looking for a Messiah who is going to come and establish the kingdom of Israel. And we see that this wasn't just a fringe movement. Even the disciples, 
as you see in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, and you don't have to turn there, the very last thing that they said to Jesus wasn't, when is the Holy Spirit going to come? Are you coming back? But they asked him, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And we see that even in their own mindsets that they were still looking for a political Messiah. But Jesus tells them, a passage that we are going to turn to, is in chapter 18, verse 36, where his true kingdom lies. So we're going to start off in verse 33. And this is the interaction between Pilate and Jesus as before Jesus is given up to be crucified. And they're having this, this discussion, and Pilate asks him some questions. And let's see how Jesus responds to where his kingdom truly is. So starting in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And so we see from this passage where Jesus' kingdom is, again, the spiritual above the temporal. That the Jews and even the disciples still had this resonate in their own heart, that they were seeking a political messiah. And even I got to listen to a, a gentleman recently, he's a Jew, a, a modern Jew, and he even is still looking for a political messiah. His name is Ben Shapiro. And so we see that that mindset is still, even to this day for the Jews, that they're still looking for this political Messiah. But Jesus was pointing into a greater kingdom, one that was spiritual nature, where he resigned, where he is king of, where he is lord of, of our spiritual kingdom. So to kind of bring this together, I want to read this quote. It's out of Leon Morris's commentary. It's going to help to kind of see like why the Jews are wrong in their thinking and they're going after Jesus as a political Messiah and missing the point. So he says this. He who is already king has come to open his kingdom to men. But in their blindness, men try to force him to be the kind of king they want. Thus they fail to, to get what they want and also Lose the kingdom he offers. So in their seeking to make Jesus this political king, they missed the true kingdom that he was bringing to them. Where he was seeking to bring down spiritual principalities, not the Roman government. That he was seeking to bind up the brokenhearted and bring healing, not just physical healing. They were missing the point. And this is even for us in our days that many times when we view politics, when we look at our nation, we try to make Christ into something that he's not for our nation. As we live in this tension of being in this world, of not, but not of this world, we must have the mindset that our kingdom is not here. This is not our home. This is not where our citizenship resides. Our primary allegiance should be to Jesus, not a political party. 
And so we should not allow our political differences to divide us. To say, if you're on this side, I cannot mess with you, or I can't talk to you, or you must be evil because you are on this side of the political sphere. And I know that's uncomfortable for many because we feel so strong about our convictions on one side or the other. Whether it may be moral, whether it may be caring for the sick or the poor, whatever it may be, we feel so strong about the other that we demonize the next, not realizing that Jesus cares for them both. That he cares for truth in the way that we conduct ourselves and live our lives. But as we see in this passage, he cares for those who are in need. So let us as believers not have to be divided on each side, but say that our allegiance is to Christ. And that is where we plant our flag. Our flag. That is where we stand. Our allegiance is to his kingdom. That we may seek him. We may seek this spiritual kingdom. And as I started off from the beginning, as we contemplated that question of seeking after Jesus, was it just because of the healing and the things that he can do? Or do we miss the point a lot of times and we think that he's he's going to do things our particular way? Or like the Jews at this end, that they completely misunderstood and they wanted him to be something that he was not. They had an agenda for Jesus that he did not have. But he's able to examine and say, Lord, I want you. If you don't do any of these other things, if you don't give me any of these other things, but as long as I have you, I have enough. Let us close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come before you in thankfulness. We come before you, Lord, asking you to try our faith, Lord. Not because we are strong enough, not because we are good enough, but because we know that you will complete the work. Because we know that you will sustain us in the midst of trials. We know that you will give us the strength to be able to follow you. And Lord, I pray that any wrong motivation, anything that may come before you, Lord, anything that we are just seeking you for, Lord, outside of yourself, Lord, may you put those things to death in us. May you help us to lean upon you. May you help us to come to you for you, Lord Jesus. May we not push our agendas upon you, but look to what is the agenda of your kingdom, that we preach your word, We proclaim your truth and we speak of your coming again. The kingdom of God is at hand and it is coming. Lord, may we look to you in faith. Thank you for all that you've done. Amen.